Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Tara Rye Trent. Dr. Tara Rye Trent grew up in a cattle herding family in rural Zimbabwe and is now one of today's most internationally recognized and respected voices for education and women's empowerment. She was named Oprah Winfrey's all-time favorite guest and received a 1.5 million donation to rebuild her childhood elementary school. Tara Rye Trent is the author of the book, The Awakened Woman, Remembering and Reigniting Our Sacred Dreams. Tara Rye Trent has an amazing story to tell and I'm eager for you to hear it from her in her own words. It's a story that inspires each of us to stay true to our ancestors, to our deepest inspiration, to our heart, and to our desire to make an offering of our lives to other people. Here's my conversation with Dr. Tara Rye Trent. Tara Rye, it is a great blessing here to be able to speak to you all the way from Zimbabwe. Thank you so much for making the time for this. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. I have to say, I feel a little nervous interviewing someone that Oprah called her all-time favorite guest out of 37,000 guests. Uh, that's quite a, an accolade. Oh, oh. I know, it's true. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, in many ways, I think what Oprah did was um, giving platform to uh, the silencing of women in making sure that there is more awakening to women's issues. Yeah. Um, and more awakening to education of women and girls. Um, it wasn't about me at all, though I am very grateful for being the vessel uh, to carry the message, to continue to make sure that uh, women own their voices and they own their own spaces in life. Mm -hmm. And here you are now, you say, this vessel for helping women own their voices and not be silenced. And I want our listeners to get a sense of the depth of obstacles that you encountered being born in rural Zimbabwe and what it 
took for you to break the cycle of being silenced? Wow. Um, gosh, it's, <laughs> you know, I always talk about um, coming from this long line of generations of, of women, women who had been married very young before they could define their own dreams, pretty much women who were silenced because of their gender, but also because of the environment in which they grew up. We grew up during uh, a colonial system that never respected um, black people and especially women. And my great-grandmother was married off when she was very young. Uh, and my grandmother would follow the same pathway as my mother. And um, when I was uh, 18 years of age, uh, I had four babies and um, um, one, of the, one of the babies died as an infant because I failed to produce enough milk for the child. I was a child mm. myself. And when I look at all these women, including myself, we were all exchanged for a cow. I mean, the marriage, to be married, you have to be exchanged for a cow. And um, it further silenced me and silenced my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my mother. And I see many women being silenced. So this is where I am coming from. I grew up uh, during the war, the war that liberated my, my country. And um, for me to be to have babies at that young age without a high school education with nothing. So when I talk about carrying this baton and being in a race where you run holding this baton, I always visualized my great grandmother because she was married when she was young, before she could define her dreams. She was running into this race that she never defined. And she's running so fast holding this baton, the baton of poverty, early marriage, the baton of abuse, and the baton of a colonial system that never respected her worthy. She runs with that baton. She hands it over to my grandmother. My grandmother grabs the same baton of poverty, early marriage, abuse. She runs with that baton. She hands it over to my mother. My mother grabs that baton in a race that she never defined, in a race that was defined by others because of her gender. She runs so fast with that baton of poverty, the baton of illiteracy, the baton of early marriage, the baton of a colonial system that never valued her. She runs and she passes on that baton to me. I never wanted that baton. It was not my race. It was never part of who I am. I wanted to be me, to be Tererai, to define my own pathway. But when my grandmother talks about this baton and my mother, they say, you are not a victim. I don't want you to think that you are a victim because you're finding yourself in a situation where you never defined. In that passing on of that baton, I was made to believe there was also the passing on of the wisdom. My great-grandmother, when she was running, she passed on her own wisdom to my grandmother, who passed it 
on to my mother. My mother passed on to me. I would have decided in my early life to say, I am a victim and I am refusing to say that. And I am encouraging your listeners and especially women to say, yes, we can recognize our past, but it is not our past that is going to define who we are. We can decide to pick the wisdom from our ancestors, the wisdom from our grandmothers, from our elders, and run with my great-grandmother was the healer. My grandmother was the healer. My mother was always referred to as the psychologist of the community, despite her poverty, despite this soul-wounding baton that she ran with. She was the healer. She was the wisdom whisperer. And she passed on that. So I decided that's how I'm going to define myself. I am a dreamer. I am the master and mistress of my own destiny. I am refusing to let the past define who I am. I am refusing to let the current challenges in my pathway become the narrative for my future. I defied the norms of my culture. I defied the rules of my father. I refused to keep silent about societal expectations that marginalize women and girls to be submissive at the expense of their dignity. But wait a minute. I was married when I was young. It means I picked that baton, but I also decided I'm not going to hand over this baton to my girls. I grew up during the war. So when the war ended, all of a sudden, we had Australians, Americans, New Zealanders, British women coming into our rural areas, even the local universities that I didn't even know existed at that time because most of the universities were in the urban areas. And there was only one university, the University of Rhodesia. And there were not that many black women attending that university. So when these women were now coming after independence, I would watch these women. They had a kind of a walk to them, confidence, and they would always carry backpacks and bags and wearing glasses or spectacles. And they would always fish something out of their bags, open these notebooks and put on their glasses, remove them, speak to one another. And I would always think when I grow up, I want to be like these women. I thought wearing glasses was a sign of education. And this woman, she sat down with me and other women in the village and she asked me one question that no one had asked me before. I was probably around 20 years of age expecting my fifth child, number five. No high school education, nothing. Living in an abusive relationship and she asked, what are your dreams? What are your hopes? I kept quiet. I had no idea that me, black woman, marginalized, living in an abusive relationship, five kids, I'm supposed to dream. I kept quiet. Other women talked of, of 
their desire to see their own children getting an education. I kept quiet. The woman looked at me. She was blonde with blue eyes. She leaned towards me and she said, young woman, you have been quiet. What are your dreams? When I opened my mouth, I became a chatterbox. And I don't know why I opened my mouth. Maybe it was the way she kept on looking at me, the way she kept on nudging at me. And when I opened my mouth, I said, I want to go to America. I want to have an undergraduate degree, a master's and a PhD. She looked at me because there was silence when I said that. All the women looked at me like I was crazy. And I believed it for a moment because I could hear them, even though they were not saying anything. How dare you can say that? You have no high school education. You have an abusive husband. You talk of going to America, a PhD. And I began to dwindle in my own space. And this stranger, she said, now I want you to understand. If you believe in these dreams that you just shared with everyone here and you work hard, they are achievable. And maybe that's all I wanted to hear as a poor mother. And she used the word Tino Gona, like Tino and I'm gonna dance. You put those into two, Tino Gona. In my language, it means it is achievable. She emphasized that word Tino Gona. I don't know what she saw in me. She really made me believe I can achieve these dreams. I ran to my mother and I said, I met a woman who made me believe in my dreams. That was music to my mother's ears. My mother looked at me and said, Terrorai, if you believe in what this stranger has said to you, and you work hard, like she said, and you achieve your dreams. Not only would you have defined every life that came out of your womb, but you would also define generations to come. And I realized in that moment, my mother was handing me an inheritance. My mother was a very poor woman, but she wanted me to break that cycle the cycle of poverty in my family. I come from a culture where when a child is born, the female elders of the village, they would snip out or cut the infant's umbilical cord or the birth cord, find the mother's old dress, cut a small piece, tie the umbilical cord into that small piece, bury the contents deep down under the ground with the belief that 
when this child grows, wherever they go, whatever happens to this child, the umbilical cord will always remind them of their birthplace. I want women to believe in the power of our rituals, our daily rituals. They help us to ground us, to hold that space for our faith. So my mother said, write down your dreams and bury them the same way we bury the umbilical cord. Wherever you go, no matter the abuse in your life, the beatings from your husband, those buried dreams, they will always remind you of their importance, that you need to break down, to break this vicious cycle of poverty, that you need never to pass on this baton to the next generation. You don't have to pass on this baton to your own children. And remember, we have now gained independence. You you are in a better place than your great-grandmother, your grandmother and myself. So I wrote down my dreams. I had four to go to America, undergraduate, master's, PhD, and I was ready to go and bury those dreams. In my culture, the word bury and plant are the same. So I was planting. But when you use the word bury, you are burying from the weather, you are bearing from the termites, you are bearing from discouragement so that you could see your own dreams grow and grow. You are providing them with that fertile soil, that nurturing ground so you can watch your dreams grow. And so my mother said, Terry, I see only four dreams, but let me remind you this, your dreams in this life will have greater meaning when they are tied to the betterment of your community. I looked at my mother. I had no idea what my mother was talking about. And I am thinking, gosh, what does that even mean? My mother, I think she saw the confusion in my face and she said, Terry your dreams in this life will have greater meaning when they are tied to the betterment of others. In many ways, my mother was saying, it's not only about your personal goals in life, your personal dreams in life. It's not only about the degrees that you are going to achieve in life or neither the personal financial goals in life, but it is about how those goals are tied to the betterment of others. That's what is going to make you a successful woman? I'd never heard about that. And I would end up writing my fifth dream, my number five dream. When I am done, I want to come back and improve the lives of women and girls. So the girls, they don't have to go through what I had gone through. They don't have to be married young. They don't have to be exchanged for a cow. They can achieve their own dreams in life. And I buried my dreams. It would take me eight years for me to achieve a high school diploma. Eight years of failing. Yes, I failed. 
but eight years of never giving up. My mother was a poor subsistence farmer. She would sell groundnuts and maize so that I could take correspondence classes. I was already an adult. I could not fit into a classroom. It was unheard of to have a mother of five going back to a classroom. I, during that time, we were still under the British system of education. So I would take two to three classes at a time. I needed five classes, English, math, science, commerce, geography, for me to qualify for a GED diploma. So because I was poor, my mother was poor, and I needed about 20 to $40 per class. And my mother would sell her groundnuts and she would give me money for one or two classes. And I would write my exams and go to this rural post office where I would mail my exams to a place called Cambridge. I had no idea where Cambridge is. And I would wait for my results to come back and walk to that rural post office. After three, six months, the results would always come in a brown envelope. And I would open that brown envelope and I would see I have a U ungraded. I have an F failure. Go back to my mother. I have failed. My mother would say, Let's wait, I'll try to sell more groundnuts and mangoes for you. She would do that, give me another $20, $40, I'll go enroll again, wait six months. The brown envelope comes, I open, I have a U ungraded, I have an F, I go back to my mother, I have failed again. My mother said, we can sell more groundnuts. They are about to finish, but I'll do the best that I can. Eight years, finally, I have an A and I have a B. My grandmother and my mother, in those eight years, they would always say, Terry go to that place where you buried your dreams. Sit and visualize and make these mental images as though you have already achieved your dreams. Feel the dreams. Smell them. And I would sit in that place and visualize myself getting into the aeroplane and remember I had never been in a plane in my life and had never seen one. The only aeroplane I knew were the war helicopters that used to come during the war and I would visualize myself getting into that helicopter, find a seat and it flies me 
to this place called America. And I would visualize these tall buildings and I'd find myself carrying books, walking into a classroom and visualize these people that I had never seen sitting and I become a student. And I would actually visualize the teacher standing in front of the classroom. When I finally got that letter that said I had been admitted at Oklahoma State University. And for the past eight, 10 years, I had been doing some peace work with non-governmental organizations. There was a rise in the demand for women, for the empowerment of women. Even if those who were not educated, we encouraged to join in. So I started working with women in what we call savings clubs, rallying women together to save whatever pennies that they were getting from their husbands so that at least we could start our gardens and I would work with different NGOs. So when I got that letter, I realized I was short because I lived with an abusive husband, so I would hide my money in every place that I could think of. In my book, The Awakened Woman, I, I talked of uh, giving my money to my sisters, my sisters-in-law to hide it. And finally, when I got that letter, I gathered all my monies and I realized I was short $640 to come to America. I went to my mother and I said, I can't do this, I'm giving up. My mother said, I don't know what to do, but I know you've worked hard, but I also know the universe has been guiding you. It will never let you down. I remember spending, I would spend a week, I couldn't even wake up. I went through a depression. I, all I could think of that $640 where I was going to get, to get it from. And then one morning, I woke up. In fact, my mother said, come to this small hut where, where we used it as a kitchen. Come, come. And I said, no, I'm not coming. I said, there is somebody to see you. So I woke up and I walked into that kitchen and I saw the village headman counting pennies and dollar notes and said the whole community, some sold their chickens and some sold mangoes and we have managed to come up with $640 so you can go to America. I came to America the first time I got onto that aeroplane there was this feeling of, I've been here before. As I found my seat on the aeroplane, it was such an emotional moment for me. I cried. 
I couldn't believe it that finally I'm here. When I arrived in Oklahoma and then finding myself carrying books, that deja vu feeling, I've been here before in my spirit. I was poor. Visualizing helped me to see this place that I had no idea that I had never seen in my life. Coming to America was a dream I wanted. But I came with five children. It was tough. I didn't have any scholarship. Uh, one day my kids were brushing their teeth and I realized they were, their gums were bleeding and I knew they were missing fruits and vegetables because I used to work in these restaurants and um, get french fries and burgers and I would feed my kids with sodas and all these things that they had never eaten in their life. It broke my heart. And I went to the university and I said, enough is enough. It's one thing to have a dream, but it's another to see your own children suffering. I think I'm done, I want to go home. But there was something at the back of my mind and I'm thinking even if I go home, I'm letting down my girls. I had a daughter, she was nine years old. And there was another one, she was five. And another one was um, probably around um, 14 months old. And I'm thinking if I take these babies with me back home, I'm passing on that baton. The fear of passing the baton grounded me. So the university said, well, here's what we are going to do. We are going to go to the local store. At the end of the day, many of these shops, grocery shops, they throw away fruits and vegetables that are going bad. I hope you don't mind feeding your kids. And I said, no, I don't mind. So the manager, the store manager says, no, I'm not going to give you these fruits and vegetables because if you consume them, if anything happens to your family or to you, you'll end up suing us. I raised my hand and I, I am crying and I said, I have no money to sue anyone, please help me. The manager looked at me and somehow I think he felt my tears. And he said, I'm not handing you the fruits and vegetables. I'm going to put them in a cardboard box. And we are going to put that cardboard box outside near the trash can. Make sure by four o'clock every day, come and pick your cardboard box. Don't miss four o'clock. Well, 99% of the time, I was always late to that cardboard box because I used to work three jobs and I used to take 18 hours of coursework and taking care of the children. I would find the cardboard box straight into the dumpster, into the trash can. Some of the fruits have already spilled out and I would collect everything, wash the fruits and vegetables, feed my children and ask myself, 
who am I to complain that my children are eating from a trash can when I know there are thousands, if not millions, of children out of sub-Saharan Africa who are homeless, who are eating from dirty trash cans. At least the American trash can, someone is washing it. Who am I even to complain? I live with my children in a trailer house in Oklahoma where the roof is falling apart and we have no electricity. During summertime, it was so hot. But who am I to complain when I know there are thousands, if not millions, of women who are on the streets? There are individuals, both men and women, who I have seen with cardboard boxes asking for food and asking for shelter. Who am I? At least I can see at the end of this dark tunnel, I can see the light. Those thoughts grounded me. So I graduated my, uh, my undergraduate in agriculture and I did my master's in plant pathology. And um, I thought, goodness Lord, I needed to take a break. I'm not going to do my PhD. I applied for a job and got uh, accepted at a place called Little Rock in Arkansas. And um, one day I am walking in the corridor, in the passageway, and I meet this woman. Uh, she's a white woman and she looks at me and she says, I know you, I think I do. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, no, I don't. And she said, I think I do. And I am thinking to myself, I have met so many Americans. <laughs> I don't think I've met this one. And she said, mm, are you not from Zimbabwe? In that moment, it dawned on me that this was the very woman that I had met some 14 years ago in my village. The woman who had seen something in my eyes that I had seen. The woman who had encouraged me to dream big. The woman who never saw my poverty, who never saw this poor person never saw my vulnerability. She saw a giant and her name is Jolak. And now she is the president and CEO of Hefa International, the organization that had just employed me. And I am thinking, what are the odds that you could have someone to inspire you and you meet them later in life. And I learned that when I met her, she was a program officer with the organization. And over the years, she had now become the president of the organization. 
I remember my grandmother and my mother, they used to say, the universe is always there to connive for our success. If we become loyal to who we are, remain grounded in our dreams, somehow the universe, God will honor our dreams. Well, my first trip back home, now I am the deputy director for monitoring and evaluation for this global organization. And my job is to travel all over the world. And I am thinking, dear God. So I went home to my village, dug my dreams, checked going to America, checked undergraduate, checked masters, reburied those dreams because I could see there were two dreams that needed to be achieved, my PhD and giving back to my community. I reburied those dreams, came back to the United States of America, enrolled myself at Western Michigan University where I achieved my PhD in evaluations, which is uh, statistics and measurement. And I remember the day that I walked that podium where they were now going to give me that paper that now says you are a PhD holder. I felt like a lawyer who had rested her case to herself and to the world. And my closing argument or my closing statement was, if we give education opportunities to those who are torn down and marginalized by the social ills of our time, they can achieve their dreams. If we give education opportunities to women and girls, they can also achieve their dreams because it is one of the best investment that anyone, that any country, any society, any community could do to give opportunities to women and girls. And if we believe in the dreams of others and create opportunities for others and be loyal to the universe, we can achieve the dreams because the silencing of women is global. It's not only in Africa, it's everywhere, even in the United States of America. But when women are awakened, there is healing for everyone. So now I'm thinking, now I have my PhD. Dear mother, why did you make me write down that number five dream? Where on earth was I going to get the money to achieve that dream? I was devastated. I went home and I couldn't think of anything. I would think of that dream and I was overwhelmed because I wanted to go home. And then that's when I got the idea to sell T-shirts. And I said, I'm going to design these T-shirts. I'm going to have Tinogona on the T-shirts. That word that Jolak used, the Tinogona, it is achievable. My T-shirts are going to have that logo. I'm going to sell many and go home and build schools. Well, 
I only sold 20 t-shirts and mostly to my American friends. And I realized I didn't have a marketing degree. I was devastated. That's when I got a phone call, the most memorable call of my life, the call from Oprah Winfrey. And the universe had remained loyal and she donated 1.5 million US dollars towards that number five dream that I am now calling the sacred dream because my mother knew it wasn't about my personal dreams in this life. And I want your listeners to know the secret to our success in this life is to allow others to stand on our shoulders, to allow others to stand on our shoulders because it's not about our personal goals in life, but it is about how those goals can be part of the society at large. And today in partnership with Oprah, I have managed to rebuild 11 schools and one of the schools has become one of the largest rural school in Zimbabwe, benefiting 38,000 children, 19,000 girls are sitting in large numbers in our schools. And for the first time in history, we have 11 kids graduating, going into university with seven girls doing auto mechanics, engineering, which is unheard of, which is unheard of. Then I begin to ask myself, what made your luck to reach out to me? What inspired my mother and my grandmother to reach out to me? And what really made me want to achieve my dreams? The answer has always been my great hunger, Joe Luck's great hunger. Everyone who came, who crossed my pathway, their great hunger. There are two kinds of hungers in our life. There is the little hunger and the great hunger. The little hunger is all about immediate gratification. I want it now. You can never satisfy the little hunger. It remains to demand more and more and more. But the great hunger, the greatest of all hungers is hunger for a meaningful life. Ultimately, as individuals and especially women, we become more silenced, more bitter when we lead a life without meaning. And I think that's one of the reasons why I decided in my life, I wanted to write my book, Igniting Our Dreams the awakened woman, to awaken women everywhere, to let women know that it's not our past, it's not the sore wounds we carry, but it is what we expect out of us. It is how we believe and become grounded in our dreams. 
And in my book, I always encourage women to do daily rituals. They can help them to ground themselves in believing in their dreams, in believing in their great hunger, their ability to tap the solutions within. You have to be more grounded. Hi friends, my name is Jono Fisher. I'm the executive director of the Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is a new non-profit organization dedicated to bringing the benefits of transformational education to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. Fleet Mall, a former prisoner and current Sounds True author, wrote, like many prisoners, I did my time in a very isolated prison where there was no access to meditation or yoga groups. The books and tapes I received from friends and publishers like Sounds True were critical to my spiritual development and path of transformation over 14 years in prison. Receiving a particular spiritual book, CD or DVD in the mail at the right time can catalyze a whole new dimension of growth for someone behind bars. If you'd like to learn more about how the Sounds True Foundation is helping change lives or to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. Now, Tara Rye, there's something I, I want to talk to you about in this image of the baton being passed to you from your great-grandmother to your grandmother to your mother to you and how you said, you know, this was not the baton you wanted to be in a situation where there was so many obstacles to you receiving the education and the great hunger that was inside you, so many obstacles to realizing it. But yet you have this great reverence and relationship with your ancestors in spite of the fact that you were born into such a difficult situation. And that's what I want to talk about because I think one of the aspects of the wisdom of Africa is this ancestral honoring and relationship that many of us in the West, we don't quite know how to connect with it. Maybe we want to distance ourselves from our family line because, you know, it's a bunch of alcoholics or because they weren't deep spiritual practitioners. We don't want to associate with them. We don't know how to take the good and leave the parts we don't. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that, how to have a healthy and empowered relationship with your ancestors. You know, uh, consciously or not, so much of who we are and what we know is handed down to us from the wise guides, the storytellers, our ancestors who came before us. So I grew up with my grandmother and my mother and the village elders and we would find ourselves sitting around an open fire, listen to stories, 
that have been passed from one generation to the next generation. My umbilical cord is long and I know my umbilical cord. I am tied to it because that's who I am. We do rituals to remember our ancestors, to know they passed on wisdom to us, despite the difficult circumstances that they went through. It's important for us to remember where we came from, to remember our roots, to remember who we are. If we don't know who we are, and I always say to my sisters, come home to yourself. Because when we know who we are, we become more grounded. I have lived in the Western world where sometimes I wonder because people, they no longer relate to their great-grandmother or to some cousin from a far distance. Those bones need to be recognized. They are sacred. They are Native Americans. They do it. They always say humankind has not woven the web of life. We are one thread within it. Whatever we do to the web, to the ancestors who are part of the circle. When I am born, I am joining the circle of women before me, even if they are not there, but I can see them as part of this circle. So I am part of that circle. Whatever we do to the web, whatever we do to our ancestors, we are doing it also to ourselves, carrying their wisdom with us. Because my grandmother, despite the fact that she was poor, despite the fact that she was marginalized, she was colonized, I don't want that narrative to be the only narrative. There is another narrative. She was a wise woman the healer of the world, the one who passed this knowledge of healing and wisdom that I carry with pride and dignity. For people who don't feel a connection with their ancestors in the way that you're describing, what do you suggest? How can they make that connection? So uh, maybe, you know, I always think about, even for suggesting to them, I, I go back to uh, science. I don't know, you know, epigenetics. Yeah. Epigenetics tells us that within our DNA, if there was an ancestor with some emotional trauma or some wisdom, it's passed on to the next generation. So if we want to know who we are, we have to know the soul wounds that we carry and the wisdom that we carry. It, because the soul wounds that we carry, they manifest in fear, they manifest in you know, these little hungers, addictions. But when we confront that past and we know our soul wounds, we are able to heal from those soul wounds. So I advise my sisters in the world, if you don't know where you come from, try to find 
the elders. If you say, well, I was adopted, I don't know my mother. There's always a mother in the community. Find a mother in the community. Find a grandmother. Because their stories they share with us, they are stories of healing. They will heal us. I truly encourage women to believe in this power of the umbilical cord, to be connected to our ancestors, to find our own rituals, our own daily rituals that we can learn from the ancestors. You, you know, I always think that in, uh, in Western world, there are elders, but somehow, we have abandoned the idea that our elders have something to offer us. We have always want to run away from aging. How many times we have forgotten that ailing grandmother? How many times even ourselves we don't want to be associated with age. And yet, in my culture, if you are old, you are more respected because you bring wisdom. And I'm not saying young people, they don't have wisdom, but there is the ancient wisdom that we need in our societies. Now, Tara Rye, something else I wanted to ask you. You said how it's not just the women in Africa who have been silenced through the cultural situation, the colonization, the being sold off to marriage for the price of a cow and everything that comes with that that you described, but that in your experience in coming to America, you saw that Western women also in certain situations seemed to you to be quite silenced. How do you see that? You know, I was um, surprised when I first came to America because I, I had very high expectations of my Western sisters because I had seen the way they walked, the way they put on their glasses. There was that freedom within them and I wanted that. But when I lived in the US and I began to see and I would look at universities, in many cases, the dean is always a man. And I would go to the banks, the head of the bank is always a man. And I would look at the presidents, it's always a man. And I begin to think, what is it about women in this country? Yet we talk about the empowerment of women and we don't see women being represented in these places that we think this is where there is power for them to make decisions, policies, and whatever. They are nowhere to be found. And then you see the Me Too movement. Gosh, and I realize the silencing of women 
is a global disease. Women, we need to stand up. We need to come together collectively as women and use our feminine energy to bring solutions to our silencing. We are smart, we are the caregivers, but sometimes we don't take care of ourselves because we are busy taking care of others. We don't take care of our own dreams because we are busy trying to take care of other people's dreams. And we become more silenced. And I am saying no more for a Western woman to be silenced, for a third world woman to be silenced. Together, collectively, we can begin this journey of our awakening. Now, Tara Rai, there's just one more thing that I wanna underscore from your book, The Awakened Woman, and talk to you about, which is I'm imagining as people listen to your story, your story of staying loyal and true to your five dreams. They might be thinking, you know, God, this woman has incredible grit, incredible perseverance. I mean, oh, what a strong will. And yet at some point in the book, this is what you write. You write that you don't view your own success through the ego filters of accomplishment. Instead, and this is a quote, I recognized my life's achievements as something inconceivably simple and yet deeply profound. At the most difficult points in my life, I had superhuman strength because of other people who gave me opportunity. And, you know, that moved me so much. It moved me because it made me want to be a source of opportunity for other people. It made me want to be that type of opportunity. And I thought, what a, what a beautiful way to put it, that it's not like we're just going out and getting our own dreams checked off, but we can actually be a living opportunity for others. And I wonder if you can comment on that. You call it an invisible ladder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My mother used to say, here on earth, especially for women, we are climbing this invisible ladder. And the invisible ladder is rungs. There are other women who are at the bottom of that ladder, trying to climb, going to the top. And there are women who are at the top. The women who are at the top, we have a sacred, a moral responsibility to pull up the women who are at the bottom of that rung so that they can also achieve their dreams. When people say to me, Tererai, you must be lucky to have achieved your dreams. And I say, no, I don't believe in lucky. I had opportunities. I had others who looked at me and provided me with an opportunity. I stand on the shoulders of giants. Every one of my dreams, I can tell you the giant whose shoulder I stood 
I stand on the shoulders of champions. This idea that you can just do it on your own, you can pull up yourself. We are social animals. We need one another. And I think that's what's driving me to go back to build schools, to provide education to others. Because I realize for me to be in this position, it was others who gave me that opportunity. They landed me their shoulder and now it's a responsibility responsibility, a sacred and moral responsibility. No one is forcing me. It's an ancient, sacred one that I'm following to allow others to stand on my shoulders. If we live in a, this world where we all do that, we recognize that there are others who are struggling and what is my role? And how is my dream connected to the struggle of others? Because if you ask yourself, how do you find your great hunger, that great hunger that connects you to others, by asking this fundamental question, what breaks my heart? It is in those moments of our brokenness, that's when we begin to feel that yearning that says, I can do what it takes to help others. And I've seen it in America. Whenever we have hurricanes, we have these things, there are others who are asking themselves, what is breaking my heart at this point? And they find themselves getting out of bed and saying, I am going to help. They're not being forced to do that. What a beautiful world we can all live if we ask what breaks my heart and connect our goals in life to the betterment of others. Now, Tara, I want to just make sure we address that person who's listening, who says, you know, I know what my great hunger is. I knew from when I was young, or I knew when I was, you know, in my early 20s, and I've given up on it. You know, it just, that's not how my life turned out. I, I, and I'm, I'm hearing this talk by Tara Rai, I know you call yourself a midwife for this awakening process. And I think there are a lot of people out there who gave up on giving birth to some of their sacred dreams. And they may be rustling a bit hearing this conversation, but saying, you know, uh, maybe I'm too old, or maybe it's just not meant to happen, or maybe that was too big a dream. Mm -hmm. So to not... You know, not to dream, not to have a vision, is almost like living a life without meaning. It's almost like being dead. I would rather live on my dream. Age should not be effect here. Because you want to be happy. Go for it. Try it. So if one has two choices, not to dream and just live this life of silencing, this dead life, and you have two choices, dead life or a dream, which one would you take? I'll take the dream life. I would pursue it. 
and see where it takes me. That's what I can advise the listeners to say, why not? Why not? If, especially if you ask yourself, what is my dream? What breaks my heart at this moment? Maybe you want to be an artist. You know, in my book, I've, I've met a woman. She, uh, she was a lawyer, but I think she was trying to just uh, fulfill what her parents wished for her, but it wasn't her dream. She wasn't happy. She would say during lectures, she would find herself drawing and doing artwork. And after she graduated from uh, her degree as a lawyer, she didn't want it. And now she's now pursuing art and she has some of pieces, pieces that she sells all over the world. But if she had denied herself to dream, she would be sitting in some office and being a lawyer and never be happy. Get out, find that dream, chase that dream, because that's who you are. We are all born to dream. Our purpose here is to find that dream. And once we do, we find joy. I've been speaking with Dr. Tara Rye Trent, educator, humanitarian, and author of the book, The Awakened Woman, a guide for remembering your sacred dreams. Dr. Tara Rye Trent has been speaking to me all the way from Zimbabwe. What's it like there? We're in the evening hours as we're recording this, yeah? It is, and it's warm. Uh-huh. <laughs> It's, it's beautiful. Uh, it rained a few days ago. Um, Zimbabwe is a beautiful country. Yeah. Thank you so much for all your good work and for the midwifing that you're doing, helping to create awakened women everywhere. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. At Sounds True, we are dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely accessible. The new Sounds True Foundation exists to remove financial barriers and make sure that people in communities of need have access to transformational tools and teachings. You can find out more at SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You can also read a full transcript of this episode at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you haven't already done so, and you want to subscribe to Insights at the Edge, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in your listening app. And if you hear something that really matters to you, that changes you, then share that insight and this podcast with others. Together, we can wake up the world. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to being with you next time. SoundsTrue.com, waking up the world.